In the opening verses of Daniel chapter 3, it leads us into this story. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high, 6 cubits wide, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the advisors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. And they stood before it. Now, Nebuchadnezzar had just recently returned from one of the greatest military victories in history, where he defeated the Assyrian and Egyptian armies at Carchemish in 605 B.C. The Egyptian army had been bogged down in the Megiddo Valley as it kind of made its way up through the land of Israel, during which King Josiah of Judah was killed and the army of Israel was defeated. But when the Assyrian and and Egyptian armies combined and they crossed the Euphrates River, they were met head-on by the forces of Nebuchadnezzar. Egypt was pushed all the way back into northern Africa. Assyria no longer would exist as an independent power. And in the process, Jerusalem was sacked. Captives and objects from the Temple of Solomon were taken back to Babylon as part of the spoils of war. Nebuchadnezzar returned to Babylon and assumed the throne of his father. So in these opening verses of Daniel chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar puts on his glory and his authority on display through a major test of loyalty. Verse 4. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will be immediately thrown into a blazing furnace. Kneel or die. Very few options. Very little discussion. And no one was exempt, from the highest officials to the judges that sat on the bench. No democracy here. So the music plays. All the nations and all the peoples who were gathered there of every language, they fell down and they began to worship. Except three men. Part of the captives from Israel. And I'll get back to them in a minute. But a question needs to be asked at this point. What possesses someone to make a 90-foot statue overlaid with pure gold in the first place? I mean, certainly a statue of just a few feet would have been sufficient. The consequences would have been the same. I think the answer to that is found back in Daniel chapter 2. And in that chapter, Nebuchadnezzar has this very disturbing dream. It's a dream of a statue. It was made up of gold and silver, bronze and iron and clay starting from the head clear down to its toes. Now, he didn't have a clue what it meant. So he summons his wise men, his magicians, his enchanters, his sorcerers, his astrologers. He wants them to interpret it for him. There was a catch. This king had asked them not to only interpret the dream, but tell him what the content of the dream was. He puts their so-called powers of divination to the test. And if they got it wrong, he tells them in chapter 2, verse 5, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. They weren't about to take that kind of risk. Verse 10. The astrologers answered the king, There is no one on earth who can do what the king asked. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing to any magician or enchanter or astrologer. And they must have taken a survey. 
But what the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among humans. Well, this made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death, and men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. Well, God does the miraculous. As a result of an all-night prayer session from Daniel and his three friends, Daniel was given not only the knowledge of the content of the dream, but he was given the interpretation of the dream as well. And so Daniel comes to Nebuchadnezzar and he tells him in verse 31, Your majesty looked, and, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze. Its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. And then Daniel continues on to tell him the interpretation. Well, you are the head of gold, Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, it's magnificent to be sure. But that is where it's going to end. Other kingdoms are going to come after you. And I have news for you. Your kingdom is only temporary. You can build all the wonders of the world that you want. You can conquer and subjugate as many nations as you possibly can, but it will not last. In about 40 to 50 years, the Medo-Persian army is going to come and they're going to march down your processional way and through your Ishtar gate and your kingdom will be history. And after that, Cyrus the Great is going to come, then Alexander the Great, and then Rome and its Caesars are going to come. But not one of those kingdoms or empires will last either. But then Daniel says the one true God will establish the only kingdom that's going to last forever. So what does Nebuchadnezzar do with all of this? Well, he makes a small G God, 90 feet high, 9 feet wide, and sets it up on the plain of Dura. And he covers it, not just its head with gold, but the entire image. Forget the silver, forget the bronze, the iron, and the clay. Forget those lesser kingdoms. I'm going to show you all of my power and all of my glory. And I'm going to strike fear in everyone's hearts. My subjects are going to kneel. They will bow or they're going to face the consequences. So the music plays. And all of a sudden you see this wave of people like a tsunami dropping to their knees from the front all the way to the back. Thousands upon thousands of them. All but three Jews. Three young men that stood together. Now, in an area of this size with this many people, three standing would hardly be noticed, except for those that were in the immediate vicinity. But they did get noticed because these men were being watched. Verse 8. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Now, your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipes, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold. And whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. In verse 12, but there are some Jews. And here's where the jealousy, the conniving, the backstabbing begins. There are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. You see, the moment that you align yourself with the purposes of God, others 
are going to be watching you. The things that you do, the things that you say, the way that you conduct your life. You get evaluated and scrutinized on the world stage. I first gave my life to Jesus Christ back in 1970. Back in the early 1970s, I had the privilege of hearing Richard Wormbrand speak. Now, he passed away a number of years ago, but he's best known in America for his book, Tortured for Christ. And he was born into a Jewish family in Bucharest, Romania, and came to Christ in 1938 through the influence of a German friend. And during World War II, he and his wife saw an opportunity to share their faith among the occupying German forces. They began preaching in bomb shelters and began rescuing Jewish children out of the ghettos. Richard and his wife were arrested and they were beaten numerous times for preaching the gospel. In 1945, when the Romanian communists seized power, over one million Russian troops poured into the country. Richard saw that as just another opportunity to preach the gospel to those Russian soldiers. He distributed over one million Bibles to the occupying forces. And soon he began smuggling Bibles back in behind the Iron Curtain into Russia. He was arrested in prison in 1948 after being betrayed by a friend where he'd spend the next 14 years of his life. But he came to embrace that time as just another opportunity to share Christ with all the prison guards. And I can remember just sitting there and listening to his story and looking at him and just wondering if God could ever use me to influence people like that. If I'd ever had the courage to stand for Jesus Christ like that. I heard Richard say that I've preached the gospel to many men of many nations. I've never seen people drink in the gospel like the Russians. They have such thirsty souls. And I can remember his passion and his conviction for the things of God. And he told story after story how God just sustained him through prison. He spoke of a cellmate that he had and who was scheduled for execution. And they gave him a, a cup of water as a last request. And the man took it. Instead of drinking it, he knelt down and he began washing his own feet with it. Richard asked him, he said, well, what are you doing? Why are, why are you washing your feet at a time like this? The man responded by saying, well, you know, they're going to beat me to death with a stick by striking the bottom of my feet. And the one doing it is, for, is one for whom Christ died. And why should he have to strike such unpleasant, dirty feet? Richard spoke about courageous faith, and I can still picture him standing there, his white hair kind of sticking out with just a glow on his face. And he said, you know, many have asked me how I survived in prison all those years. But I tell them that it was in prison is when I got busy for God. For you know, he said in his heavy Romanian accent, it's not the outlook, he said, it's the uplook. He was convinced that God did his best work in him during the midst of his worst days. God taught him to look up, keep his eyes fixed on Jesus. See, Richard was one who refused to kneel. A few years ago, I was in Amsterdam, the Netherlands, and attending a conference for church planting in Europe. I had an afternoon free, so I asked the event planner, you know, what she suggested to see in the area. We were staying outside uh, by the airport. She told me to take a short bus ride up to the city of Harlem. I'd never been there before, and so I jumped on the bus and got up there, and I began walking around and just kind of 
And I didn't have a map. I had no clue what I was doing or what I was looking for. And I just kind of wandered around. I was looking at the harbor and the shops and the churches. I mean, it really is a beautiful city. And after about an hour or so, I turned down a street and came upon a multi-story building that had a watch shop on the first level. There was a blue awning that was overhanging the main front window, and all it said on it was, Ten Boom. It completely caught me off guard, because I thought, well, this can't be Corey Ten Boom. Well, it was. I had completely forgotten that she was from the city of Harlem in the Netherlands. I mean, it was such an amazing surprise to me just to find it completely accidentally. So here I was standing in front of the Ten Boom family home, and I saw a sign in the, in the window that said there was a tour for English speakers that was going to start in about 15 minutes, so I just kind of waited around. Initially, I was the only one there, and then there were four Dutch women who kind of came up and joined me. And when the tour guide opened the door, she invited us to come in and to sit in the family parlor. After a few minutes of visiting, the guide asked me where I was from. I told her I was a pastor from the Chicago area and how it was such an unexpected privilege for me to visit this home. Then she asked me to go and to step into another room with her. I thought, okay, what did I do? Um, and she said that, that um, the four women who were there, they spoke very little English, and they were there for the wrong tour. And she said, you know, they're not believers. I hate to turn them away. Would I mind terribly if she gave me a brief personal tour of the hiding place? Then I could wander around the house all to myself. She didn't want to miss the opportunity to share Christ with those women. And so she led me up the staircase to visit the room of the hiding place. She had known Corey Tenboom personally and proceeded to tell me Corey's amazing story, which I had heard 40 years late, earlier. Back in 1975, I'd seen the film depicting her life that was produced by Worldwide Pictures, the Billy Graham Association. It was called The Hiding Place. It was based on her book. You know, Corey's grandfather had opened a watch shop in that building in Harlem back in 1837, and the family lived above it ever since. And during World War II, the Ten Boom family began working with the Dutch resistance. And they used this home as a place of refuge, a hiding place for those who were being hunted by the Nazi SS. Their home became a safe house not only for Jews but for members of the Dutch resistance and many others up to six to seven at a time. And in the event of a raid, they would hide them behind a false wall in Corey's upstairs bedroom. And that's what I went up to see. They helped save the lives of over 800 Jews until someone they trusted betrayed them in 1944. And the Gestapo arrested their entire family. And both Corey and her sister Betsy eventually ended up at the German concentration camp in Ravensbrück. Corey became prisoner number 66730. And even in the midst of the horrible conditions and the harsh brutalities and the loss of their family, it was because they had each other and they had a personal relationship with Jesus Christ that enabled them to sustain the atrocities during those days. Betsy died in prison. Corey lived and went on to tell their story in which thousands have come to Christ since. Corey and Betsy Ten Boom were ones who refused to kneel. See, persecution continues to rage today against the church and, pe and the people of God in many, many parts of the world. In 2011, the International Bulletin of Missionary Research published a special report on martyrdom. 
The report defined a martyr as believers in Christ who have lost their lives prematurely in situations of witness as a result of human hostility. Now, the report estimates that there were on average 270 new Christian martyrs every 24 hours over that past decade, such that the number of martyrs from 2000 to 2010 was approximately 1 million. Now, that doesn't even take into account those who had been discriminated against or abused in some way. I was just in Ho Chi Minh City, Vietnam, just a few weeks ago, and I was speaking at one of the churches that we support. They rent space in a small building that has a glass front that's facing the street. And when I arrived, the pastor asked me to come quickly inside because they did not want to draw too much attention to Westerners being present in the area. This church is an underground church. It's not registered with the communist government. Ninety percent of the 40 in attendance have been believers there two years or less. Since this is an unregistered church, it often gets harassed by the local police. The pastor told me that sometimes the police come and stand outside the glass windows of their rented facilities just staring at him while he's preaching. This, of course, brings a lot of concern and fear to the young believers. Newer Christians are specific targets of the police who intimidate them with questions like, why do you want to be a Christian in the first place? Christianity came from America. They're the ones who bombed our country. Why are you disrespecting your family and not offering sacrifices to your ancestors? And these churches have a big task on their hands. And overcoming discouragement is one of their major challenges. But he proceeded to tell me then about the value of their small groups that meet during the week. He described them as the glue that kind of holds the church and these young believers together. Without them, they said, many of them would just fall away from their faith. The pastor told me, he said, persecution... And we face so little in comparison to the one we follow. It's all worth it, he said. You see, they are ones who refuse to kneel. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men stood together. They didn't break rank. They refused to kneel. Verse 13. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. He was going to give them another chance. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. And then what god will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Now here are three young men, snatched away from their homes in Jerusalem, educated in a pagan Babylonian system, given Babylonian names, holding prominent positions in the kingdom, standing before the most powerful king in the the known world. And all they need to do is to keep their mouths shut, to rationalize, to comply. They had status, they had wealth, they had security, they had life itself. 
But given all of that, they boldly declared to Nebuchadnezzar, we may be in your kingdom, but we are not part of it. We worship the one true God. He is the one who governs our lives. And in a statement that's worth the price of the book, they said that they would not bow, even knowing that there was a possibility that God may not deliver them. Incredible. Everything was put on the line because of the one they worshipped. You see, God looks for one man. He looks for one woman who has the courage on this earth to stand up and to become his personal representative. Who has the courage to speak while others kneel. To stand while others bow before the false gods of this world. Some of you are in situations at school, at work, your families, your neighborhoods, where you may be the only voice of God in that context. And you wonder... Can I, can I make a difference? I mean, these men were overwhelmingly not outnumbered. Thousands of others were taking a knee. But they believed simply this, that one plus God constitutes a distinct majority. Verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual. This was probably a brick kiln that fired the bricks from the Ishtar gate. And he commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, their trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace was so hot that the flames of fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Now do the math. No matter what circumstances that you are facing, no matter how threatening and adverse the situation might be in your life, no matter how difficult things might seem to get to speak up about Jesus Christ, the equation always comes out the same. You plus God constitutes a distinct Majority. So the question becomes not what can one or even a few people possibly do, but what is the one true God going to do through you? Verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, Well, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, Well, certainly, Your Majesty. He said, Look. I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the royal advisors crowded around them. And they saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was the hair of their heads head singed, Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Three men, in the most difficult test of loyalty to God they'd ever faced in their lives, the only ones standing among thousands, not ashamed to put God on display in their lives. And don't miss it here. God did not deliver them from the fire. He delivered them in it. They had made up their minds that God was going to be first place in their lives no matter what happened. 
their actions made the most powerful man, ruler of the most glorious kingdom in the known world, the one who declared, I don't need your God, I've made my own, find himself acknowledging the one true God. You know, as I've been studying through the book of Daniel this, this summer, and this chapter in particular has just kind of jumped off the pages into my life. It's almost as if Daniel is asking me here, you know, is God showing up in you, Rick? Can people see him? Are you standing when thousands of others have taken the knee to other gods or to other pursuits? Do you have a group of friends who are willing to stand with you? We're in the midst of a four-message series called Charting Our Course. And in this series, we're looking at the four priorities of the Compass Church. Pursue, connect, serve, and reach. Now, we're not saying that a growing walk with Jesus Christ is only about these four priorities. But we believe that if you intentionally include practice and activate these in your life, your life will move in a forward direction that's becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. Now, last week, we looked at the upper left quadrant, pursue him daily. This involves getting into the Word of God on a regular basis and developing consistency in our prayer life. Next week, we're going to look at that lower left quadrant, serve, and see how vital it is to use our spiritual gifts in and through the church. In the last week of this series, we're going to be looking at reach. And oh, how we have to guard ourselves from relinquishing our passion for reaching others who do not have a relationship with him. This week, we're zeroing in on connect. And while these are not intended to be sequential, the intensity of our pursuit of God has a direct bearing on how our life is going to impact and influence others as we connect in community with one another. You see, coming to Jesus Christ is an intensely personal decision. No one else can make that decision for you. You have to make it. But after you come to faith, God does not want us to remain as an isolated, redeemed person. That's not how he's made us. We become part of a family. He wants us to begin relating to each other in intensely spiritual ways. And we believe at the Compass Church that one of the best ways to experience this is connecting into a small group or even into a mid-sized group, what we call our adult Bible fellowships here on this campus. Not a group that's in reality just another meeting, just another event just to kind of manage on your schedule. We have enough of those kinds of things. But connecting to a group of fellow followers of Jesus Christ who passionately allow God to do his life in them and letting the overflow of that relationship spill into the lives of others. You know, I think this was true in the lives of Daniel and his three friends. I think the relationship between these four men was, was tight. It had a direct bearing on their ability to follow God in the midst of a hostile culture. It enabled them to stand together and lay their lives on the line, bringing glory to the one true God. And here's what I think marked their lives, that these four connected in community with each other. And what I believe must be a vital part of any group that we, that we are part of. The first one is this. There needs to be a commitment to prayer. We saw in Daniel chapter 2 that he immediately went to his three friends to get them to pray, urging them to plead to God with, for mercy to, that God would spare their lives. Now that was aggressive, passionate, lay it all on the line kind of prayer. That kind of prayer does not happen from those who have a casual relationship with God. 
doesn't happen through some half-hearted effort. I believe these men devoted themselves to prayer on a regular basis, pleading with God every single day. I mean, they had to to survive an environment like Babylon. We need to be in a relationship with others who we trust, who are willing to get busy with God with us to pray. Second, a commitment to life transformation. Now, while we don't see it directly spelled out in the text here, we certainly can see the results of it. These four were holding each other accountable. They were discipling and they were encouraging one another. I mean, they had to be. Think of the pressure any one of them must have felt when the music began to play. Not one of them caved. Not one of them flinched. You know, there's a reason why in the New Testament it's it's just littered with 58 commands to love one another, to teach one another, to rebuke, to care, to comfort, to forgive, to honor, to serve, and on and on and on with one another. We are to be in a community of discipleship, and there's no better place to do that than in a group. Third, they had a commitment to engage the culture with the truth. I mean, these four were right in the thick of it. They had high positions within a pagan and godless system, but they did not disengage from it until they had to. Since the beginning, God has always used his people to proclaim his glory in the midst of hostile situations, calling them to testify and witness before the nations, to stand up and proclaim the truth of the gospel. You know, we all have relationships with with people that no one else has. And God has called us to reach into the nooks and crannies of our relational connections, calling us to share our faith and have compassion for the lost. A group that is in community with each other is a great launching pad to reach the world. Fourth, a commitment to support each other in crisis. I heard someone say once, shake a man and you'll see what spills out of his heart. Well, you can see what spilled out of the hearts of Daniel and his three friends when they were shaken. As you read through this book. I mean, they were totally dependent upon God and upon each other in what had to be the most severe challenge that they would ever face in their lives. See, crisis and adversity are great markers to see how deep the Word of God has taken root in us. Where do you go when the rug gets pulled out from under your feet? You see, we need to be in community with each other so we can stand by each other when it counts the most. And then fifth, a commitment to stand together in the presence of a fourth. Now, I've always been intrigued by what took place inside the furnace. God shows up. I believe it was the pre-incarnate person of Jesus Christ. Instead of three men, Nebuchadnezzar sees a fourth. Instead of being bound, these men were free. Instead of screaming out in pain, they were just casually walking around in a fire, having no desire to come out. I mean, why why would they want to come out? God was with them. They were never closer to him than they were in the midst of the fire. Think about what can happen when God shows up in your life, when he shows up in the midst of your group. You know, I love my small group. My wife and I have been part of a group for years, and we were together just this last Monday night after a break during the summer, and it just felt great to see everyone, enjoy the relationships that we have with each other. We're already planning, anticipating what God is going to do through our lives and through our group as we come back together for this next year. But you know, if you're not in community with others, I want to challenge you today to get connected 
whether it's in a small group or a mid-sized adult Bible fellowship group, where you can consistently live out these principles in your life, where you can be sharpened by others, where you can stand together in an increasingly hostile culture that we live in, walking in the presence of a fourth, letting God show up in your life as you connect with others and accomplish what you thought you could never do. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you this morning that we can be together and we're grateful for the lives and the testimony of Daniel and his three friends. Father, we thank you for the courage that they had that didn't come from themselves but came as a direct result of a relationship with you. Father, I pray that you help us to become a campus of people, a church, they're boldly willing to stand up and proclaim the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you for that privilege. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.